Our reading is from the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, and this uh, reading begins at the 12th verse. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Hmm. Then the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying on your own behalf. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid because I know where I've come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is valid. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. I testify on my own behalf, and the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf. And then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Because we are blessed every weekend with first-time visitors and because some of our members aren't always here every Sunday that they could be or should be, of course, I'm not talking about any of you good people. Um... We always do a little bit of reviewing during a sermon series. And so just to uh, go back to the well, um, right after Ash Wednesday, that first weekend in Lent, we heard the glorious proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. And that proclamation, that word, was spoken by the Father. His voice was heard from the heavens as the clouds parted. And Jesus was there, do you remember, at the River Jordan? Um, John, his cousin, was there baptizing people for uh, repentance, calling people to repent of their sin. It was a cleansing baptism. And city folk and country folk, folks from Jerusalem and from the Judean uh, countryside, were all coming. And then Jesus appeared, and God uh, confirms his identity. You are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. And if you uh, weren't in worship, if you're visiting for the first time today, uh, that sermon is on our website, and I would... uh, encourage you to give it a listen. And then we um, looked at Jesus as our friend. And if Jesus uh, is your friend, then he's a friend of a sinner. And if he's my friend, he's a friend of a sinner. We're all sinners. All of us have fallen short of God's glory in one way or the other. Martin Luther said we're in bondage to sin. We cannot free ourselves. You know, we need a champion. We need a hero. We need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For if we could make ourselves holy, we certainly don't need Jesus to go the way of a bloody, agonizing, horrible death on a cross, right? So Jesus is our friend, and he calls us his friends, not just servants, but friends. That's a wonderful thing. That's why we can sing the great hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. And today we hear from John that Jesus is not only Son of God, friend of sinners, but he is, as he describes himself to be the light of the world, the light of the world. Now, as we meditated on our friendship with Christ last week, I ask you to use your sanctified imagination and think about that person that stands alone in your life, in your experience, as your very best friend. 
and I ask you to think, and maybe you can think now if you weren't here then, why is that best friend the best? What distinction? What is it that makes that person stand alone and remain so very special to you compared to all the other good friends that you have? And now I want you to think about darkness. Not just the darkness that we experience in the middle of the night when all the lamps have been turned off, and not just the darkness that we experience here, you know, in the Duke City when we get far enough away from the lights that glow, you know, here in Albuquerque. I'm not asking you to think about the darkness in some remote area where there's no electricity or or sky glow, or as some people call it, you know, light pollution. Instead, I want you to think about emotional darkness, uh, situational darkness, spiritual darkness, the darkness that comes upon us all from time to time in sorrow, uh, times of great difficult loss, uh, the darkness that comes with confusion, the darkness that can surround us when we're uncertain or fearful. You see, this kind of darkness can surround a person on a summer day at high noon without a cloud in the sky, right? It's a different kind of darkness altogether. And just as your best friend is your best friend for all kinds of deeply personal and unique reasons, uh, your darkest hour, your dark moments are uniquely yours because they are uniquely yours. Uh, Your darkest moments might be very different than the persons sitting near you, behind you, in front of you. Long ago, when I was a young man, still in high school, I had the honor of being in the presence of a very special military veteran. He, like so many others, had been a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And some of you remember when those POWs started to be released, making their way home to the States. That happened about 1973. He described in vivid detail uh, the darkness of being held captive We had about 5,000 kids in the the very large um, field house, the gym where I played basketball, and you could have heard a pin drop. He described the darkness of just waiting, waiting for what he knew was the interrogation and the torture that would soon come again, as it always did. And he described the darkness of not knowing if he would ever see his beautiful wife's face again, kiss her on the cheek, or embrace his children back home. Uh, Go forward a few years in history, and some of you are old enough to remember when 52 of our fellow Americans were uh, taken hostage in Iran. And do you remember how many days they were held? 444. And then they were finally uh, released, but it all started... (laughs) In uh, February of 79, my last year of college, when our American embassy was taken over by the uh, militants in Tehran, one of those hostages uh, happened to be a member of my home congregation in Northern Virginia, um, Catherine Cobe. We called her Kate. And after she was released and finally made her way home, uh, she spent a lot of time on the speaking circuit. People wanted to hear her story, especially Lutherans. She had invitations to come speak at our Lutheran seminaries, our Lutheran colleges, and many church events and youth gatherings. 
And Kate would uh, talk very honestly about um, those dark times during 444 days of captivity. I wish I could remember the name of the, um, the man who spoke to me as a former prisoner of war. Don't remember his name. But he and uh, Kate Cobe experienced um, a darkness that most of us can only imagine. And yet, as both of them spoke of the darkness that was so real, so palpable, so ever-present, they also were able to speak of light, the light of hope that is ours in Christ, because both the POW and Kate are Christian. And even in the despair and the loneliness of their captivity, they knew Christ, the light of the world, that no darkness shall overcome, and no means no, no darkness. This morning I want to share with you some rather um, raw and uh, honest words that come from another Lutheran. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor, a theologian. He stood up to the evil called uh, Nazism, and he was arrested along with others. He was eventually put to death by hanging just three days before the Allied forces liberated his camp. But while in prison, he continued to do the work of a Christian. He wrote many letters and papers. And what I'm about to share with you from Bonhoeffer during his captivity is really a prayer. It's really a prayer that he is speaking to God. And so we get to listen in to a fellow Christian praying uh, during a time of darkness and captivity. And this is not the kind of prayer that most people um, pray when they move into a, an attitude of prayer. Um, some people wrongly think that Christian prayer always has to be really upbeat and positive and, you know, God, you are so great and we praise your holy name and we thank you for the multitude of blessings that we receive. And those are all good and righteous prayers, but um, when you look at Scripture, especially the Old Testament in the Psalms, uh, you see that many prayers are not just prayers of gratitude and praise, but prayers of lamentation and, and grief and sorrow. Um, I don't want you to look at it now because I'm still preaching. But in the green worship book, we've got our hymns, and then right in front of the hymns, we have the Psalms. And every now and again, a, a person will say, Pastor, my hymnal's defective. Some of the Psalms are missing. Like Psalm 37. It ain't there. Because the people who put the hymnal together, and I wasn't on that committee, decided, ooh, we can't have that psalm in our official hymnal because some of those psalms are like, Lord, my enemies, my enemies surround me. And I feel desolate. Where are you? Lord, how long must I suffer? I mean, we don't always find prayers like that or songs like that acceptable, do we? And we should, because God knows what's in our heart and in our minds anyway. Uh, we don't come to church and sing uh, songs like, O oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider how I feel so all alone. Where are you now? I mean, we don't sing songs like that. But the Israelites did. The people of Israel did. Um, they had their psalms, their hymns, their songs of sorrow and lament, crying out to God. 
knowing that he hears us. So anyway, here is a prayer from a pastor that might surprise you. Dietrich said, In me there is so much darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am so restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there's patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Lord Jesus Christ, you were poor and in distress, a captive and forsaken as I am. You know all my troubles. You abide with me when all others fail me. You remember and seek me. It's your will that I should know you and turn to you. Lord, I hear your call and follow, but help me. Hmm. So what Bonhoeffer is describing here is what is uh, called rightly a theology of the cross, uh, which is not the same as a theology of glory. In a theology of glory, the approach to Christianity and life in general is an attempt to downplay or minimize or simply ignore all those things about life, this side of heaven, that are ugly and unfair and difficult and painful. And as Martin Luther put it so long ago, a theology of glory doesn't want to see God on the cross and can't see God suffering on the cross, bleeding. In this false theology, the cross is not where God meets us. The cross is rather something to be avoided because that means obedience and ridicule and rejection. It means suffering and death. But in a theology of the cross, we behold the man of sorrows by whose stripes we are healed. We see the love of God most clearly and perfectly in the suffering of his only son. He is the light of the world, but he is the light, the one true light, because he did not run from or avoid the agony of crucifixion. Bonhoeffer understood this. We would do well to understand the same. As a Christian, following Jesus, he was not afraid to name his own darkness, his loneliness, his feebleness, his restlessness, or even his bitterness. And we should not be afraid or ashamed to name our own. For in naming the darkness for what it is, because God knows it already, we simultaneously claim the light of Christ for what it is. And the theology of the cross, brothers and sisters, was never intended to be popular. It doesn't make for cute bumper stickers and catchy slogans or uber-cool billboards that we see around town here on I-40 and I-25. Where some churches want to be so cool, but they don't want the cross, and you won't even find a cross in some of their sanctuaries because the cross is offensive. It's a theology of the cross that we hear when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's dying. A theology of glory can't handle a bloodied Savior. And it has no clue what to do with those real feelings of forsakenness and that sense of darkness that I think all of us have experienced from one time to another. In my preparation for today's meditation, I came across this quote from a a Christian I'd never heard of before. His name is Michael Horton. 
at Westminster Seminary in California. Listen to what he has to say about the state, the culture of the Christian church in these United States today. Name it and claim it, health and wealth. These are nicknames for the heresy of the most typical preaching in today's American Christianity. God is basically there for you and for your happiness, and he's got some rules and principles for getting whatever you want out of life. You can have whatever you want. Just declare it, and prosperity will come your way. Proponents of this prosperity gospel have big names and are best-selling authors. They are purveyors of a pagan worldview with a particularly American flavor. It's what the 16th century German monk turned reformer Martin Luther called the theology of glory. This theology has no room for suffering or sacrifice. The contrast is the theology of the cross. God's merciful descent to us at great personal cost. A message the Apostle Paul acknowledged was offensive and deemed foolish by the powers and principalities of this world. As we move farther along this holy season of Lent, the days are getting longer. Spring weather is coming. The temperatures are getting warmer. I don't know about you, but I'm already picking weeds out of my Xeriscaped front yard. I thought nothing was supposed to grow there. We're seeing more and feeling more light and the warmth it brings every day. Yet even with the more abundant sunshine and the more favorable temperatures, there is a particular kind of darkness or sadness in which only the light of Christ can bring relief and comfort So you remember what we've learned these last weeks. Jesus is not just a good man or a great teacher. He is the living Son of God. The Lord, the Word made flesh, left the beauty of heaven. You think about your best vacation. That's nothing compared to the beauty of heaven. And Jesus left the beauty of heaven to experience the pain of death on earth. He became one of us, sinners one and all that you could become and I could become one with him, his friend. Jesus is your friend, King of kings, Lord of lords, Lion of Judah to be sure, anointed one, Christos, Messiah, yes he is, but he is your friend. And as Rudy read in the uh, Psalm today, your own parents may abandon you, but not your best friend Jesus, he'll never turn his back. And he is the light of the world, not generated by human hands or kinetic energy. Uh, Jesus is not merely the uh, absence of darkness. Uh, This light is the full, beautiful, wondrous expression of God's love, a love that shines in all darkness, and no darkness can overcome it. Whatever darkness you are experiencing now, that you've experienced in the past, that revisits you, whatever darkness you may encounter in future years, It cannot overcome the light of God's love that is yours. And it is yours in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.